When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Today we've been lucky enough to talk with lawyer Hayley Collins. For anyone who has lived through birth trauma and has ever considered legal action, this is an episode not to be missed. But if talking about birth trauma could be possibly triggering for you, you may just want to skip through to another episode or come back at a later time. This also could be super helpful for anyone supporting a woman who has experienced birth trauma. So be sure to share it with the carers and anyone you know in that medical or legal field. It could help them be better at supporting those mamas in need. Today I've decided to try Madame Flavor's Luscious Licorice for something a little bit different. It's really bold and sweet at the same time, which is kind of like our chat with Hayley today. Hello, brave mamas. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? I'm your host, Steph Thompson, and I can't wait to share our special guest with you today. So, Hayley, let's chat law. I know that this episode is going to mean a lot to a lot of women who have experienced birth trauma. Let's start. So, you've worked in medical negligence for some time. Um, what type of negligent, medical negligent cases have you been involved in? So I've been really lucky to have been involved in a lot of different types of cases. Um, so some of the ones that we see most often are in the areas of, um, say, paediatrics, oncology, plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery, uh, a lot of gynecology cases, emergency medicine, genetics, um, oh, wow. <laughs> often a lot of psychiatric injury uh, from people who have had a loved one that has passed away or been injured when they shouldn't have, um, oh. and also a lot of obstetric and birth-related cases. Yeah, I want to know that. I want to know, like, being involved in birth trauma cases, um, it can't be easy, right? It is really tough, um, particularly for me, being a woman, um, being around the same age as a lot of the women that come to us, it really does hit home for me more than some of the others, just because yeah. of those similarities. Yeah, right. So we're going to deep in, um, dive deep into those in a little bit, um, in a little bit. But I guess what it might be helpful to know too, like what is the difference between like a lawyer and a senior associate and a barrister? Because they're all terms that I heard throughout my journey in, in, you know, in, in the law side of things. And I didn't know the difference. And if someone is having a birth trauma, or they think they've had birth trauma and they're thinking about talking to a legal representative, 
which one of those do they need to talk to? Like, yeah. It's a good question <laughs> and it can be confusing that there are so many different titles. So in a nutshell, we are all lawyers. It's just we have okay. kind of slightly different roles and responsibilities. So in the same way that you have, you know, the title of doctor, underneath that you might have a GP, a cardiologist or oh, yeah. um, a paediatrician or something like that. So sure. normally what happens is that a client will come to see a solicitor such as myself at a law firm yeah. um, and the solicitor is the one that has the day-to-day conduct and does most of the legwork in the case. Yeah. <laughs> um, but normally in medical negligence cases, because they can be quite complex, it's normal for us to then brief a barrister. So a barrister is generally a very experienced solicitor that has then begun, become a barrister So the barrister's role is to give the solicitor advice when it comes to making strategic decisions, um, such as which expert to use to get an opinion from, for example. So the solicitor and the barrister work closely together. um, But the barrister's job is to advise and the solicitor uh, does most of the work involved in the case. Yeah, sure. So solicitor and lawyer are the same tier. That's the yes. it's like the same thing, but just call a different thing. Yes. So okay. um, solicitors, associates, barristers, we are all lawyers. Okay. Um, but the solicitor is someone like me who does most of the work involved in the case and someone like okay. me is um, who a client would initially come to see. Yeah. Okay. So you would be like the, the main contact person that a woman yes their partner would talk to throughout their law journey okay great I think I've got it (laughs) because then that makes sense to me because I do remember seeing a solicitor first and then I got confused and told my mum I think it was a lawyer or a solicitor and she's like don't they mean different tiers and then we saw a barrister and yeah yeah so in what's already a confusing time you know adjusting to motherhood remembering those things can be a bit tricky so thanks for clearing that up um I guess it'd be really good to to know some of the really positive aspects of you working in that space in birth trauma because I know we have we always hear the horror stories or the horrible experiences that people have are there any positives that you've come across there are um, like you say, it, it can be a tough process, um, particularly yeah. medical negligence claims because they're not quick. Uh, okay. Usually we find that they take about 18 months, give or take, from start to finish. Okay. Um, we do often need to have the injured person assessed by lots of different specialties of doctors so that we can yeah. get a full appreciation of the injuries that they have suffered so that they're properly compensated for that. Um, so that can be a really prolonged and stressful and difficult experience for a lot of people, understandably so. But I think there definitely are positives, Um, one obviously being the compensation at the end, but also for a lot of um, people and women in particular, I think, just to go through that process, they can find very validating of what they've been through to have other people acknowledge their injuries, acknowledge their trauma. Um, That it's not that that can be rewarding for people and healing in itself. Yes, yes. I often refer to it as my resolve. Mm. Part of that healing process is that at the end you feel like you've got some an end line, like a finish line. Yes. And I know that I've talked about it in the book that that going down the path of 
the law side of things, I soon realized that wasn't my result personally and chose to opt out at, at a certain point. So we'd already gone down a very long path and, you know, said it's 18 months. I think we were probably hitting that mark and maybe I was getting fatigued and stressed and um, constantly talking about it and didn't realize um, that my resolve was somewhere else. So, it, you know, I think for some women, it definitely the law side of things. And you know what? I think at the same time, around about the same time on the front page of our local paper, a lady was successful in a medical neg case against mm-hmm. the hospital during childbirth. And I was so proud of her. I was like, go you. But then I read comments underneath from the general public. Mm. Freaked me out, you know, saying things like, oh, she's just money hungry, just grabbing. And I was quite delicate at the time and probably had postnatal depression. I don't think I could have taken that. I wasn't strong enough at the time Mm. to have people question your integrity that Mm. you just want money. It's Like you just said, it's a lot more than just... A lump sum it's absolutely absolutely and I found at least in my experience again particularly with women when they come to us they will say you know my motivation is not money although you know of course that would make life easier but one of the biggest drivers for women is wanting to do what they can to prevent the same thing happening to someone else and I I think that's a really lovely and altruistic you know, attitude to have coming into something like this. And it's so at odds with some of those comments that you described. Oh, yeah. It's I just so disagree with that. Yeah, it's uneducated. And I also think people are uneducated about, so I know personally we'd spent, I can't even tell you anymore, but I think at the time we had to calculate the costs involved mm. around birth trauma. And we were hitting 50,000 plus, and that's within 18 months. So that's your physiotherapy, your doctor's appointments, your diagnostic stuff, um, things around the house. And so the money is not about, oh, yeah, you're going to be rich. It's about trying to recoup money that you've had to borrow from the bank or borrow from family just because you had a baby. Do you know what I mean? Right. And the purpose of compensation is to, you know, in the best way that money can, to put you back in the position that you would have been in but for your injury. So exactly like you say, it's designed to try and compensate you for the out-of-pocket expenses that you wouldn't have had, the future treatment that you will need, the trauma that you have suffered. It's not just, you know, an amount that's pulled from the clouds as an award. It's to try and make up for the damage that's been done. Yeah, and it's quite calculated. Yeah, Mm, I do do that. Um, So do you think then, and this is is probably more of a personal opinion with a slash of your... Your, you know, your sure. lawyer hat. Do you think that all women are suitable for pursuing a legal case with birth trauma? The short answer is no. Um, okay. But what I would say is that um, even though there's a lot of women who might have had a really traumatic experience, yeah. but you know, they're not sure whether there was negligence involved. So they might often come to a lawyer looking for answers about, do I have a case? Yeah, yeah. It's important for us to advise all clients and women that we're initially in a really tough position to be able to say whether or not they have a case. What we need to do is firstly to get their medical records and then, sure. you know, go through those records with a fine tooth comb 
generally yeah. after we do that, we might be able to give women a bit more clarity as to whether we think there's something in it. But yeah, ultimately okay. what it comes down to, as you know, Steph, is going that one step further and getting an opinion from an expert as to whether there has been negligence. So yes, until we do that, we're not sure. Yeah. Um, we, you know, would certainly encourage any women who think that there might have been negligence to, you know, consider going through that process to find out. Um, but the short answer is that not all terrible outcomes will result in a case for medical negligence. Yeah, okay. And that makes sense too, because I think um, I know early on everyone, like in my immediate family saying, mm. what happened to you wasn't normal. And I think in an emotive state, people say, you should sue the hospital. That's not right. And because at that time the hospital kept telling my husband and I that it was normal and it was all normal part of normal childbirth, they call it, mm. vaginal childbirth, we didn't question it. I knew I felt really bad and I was injured really bad, but I just thought, well, that's because I've never had anything to compare it to. It was my first birth. Mm. And so we believed them that it was normal. And then when things were not healing and things were just getting worse, I'm like, oh, maybe my family are right. And that's when I first took my first step into a law firm and said, like you said, I went, I went looking for clarification to say is this or isn't it is it my parents and my family just loving me too much and hating to watch this or is it a real thing you know so I think that's important like you said to just maybe that that initial consultation and I think when I did that it didn't cost anything to have that first chat that's which right. is yeah <laughs> because it's um yeah people always say oh it's so expensive uh, engaging a law firm and it is and we found that and I'll talk about that soon but that initial consultation wasn't didn't cost anything so I think it's um so let's then say I know you mentioned your medical records and I had no idea what what all of that even meant so maybe you could share with us if a woman is listening to this now and like my medical records, what do I do? So in Australia, what, what is the process to get your medical records from the hospital? Yeah, sure. So medical records, they are the property of the doctor or hospital who creates the records, but because they okay. relate to you, you do have a right to access that information. Sure. So um, some clients who come to us, they have taken the step of trying to get a copy of their records themselves, and that's great. That's really helpful for us. Um, okay. Normally what we do, though, just routinely, because sometimes not all of the records have been provided to the woman, um, okay. we'll go ahead and make another request, um, you know, specifying exactly what types of records we need just to make sure that when we do then speak to an expert and for our purposes, we can be confident that we have everything and we have the full picture. Yeah, good, good point. Because I remember I, I, um, I went through the process of requesting the records from the hospital myself and I think it was only $30. So I was like, oh, yeah, I can mm -hmm. do that. And when it arrived, the file was only this thick. It was like the first 30 pages and that's mm -hmm. it. And then there was actually nothing about the birth. So there was 10% of it was all the pre-diabetic education that I had done which was all good. And then when it got to the pointy end, it was like the fire was missing. So then we had to request it again and pay again and do all of that, which is, I guess that's why you guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and, and to be honest, when I got the records, I couldn't make left from right. I mean, what is this? I couldn't understand the terminology anyway. So it was probably better that you do speak to someone like yourself who can explain 
this means this and that means that and this is good and this is not good or whatever it's going to be. Um, so once I think the biggest thing for me was that once we'd had the records, uh, the proper the proper records and then sat back down with the lawyer, it was all um, very much so, oh, yeah, you definitely have a case and proceeded along those lines. And then when the barrister became involved, she introduced this word to me. Mm. I still don't get it. I wanted <laughs> to try and explain it. Causation. Yes. What is it? <laughs> That's a really good question. And it's often, you know, the main issue in medical negligence cases. There's an argument about causation. So um, in a nutshell, causation is the link in the chain between the mistake that was made and the injury to the person. So um, in all medical negligence cases, we need to prove that not only was there a mistake or a breach of the doctor's or the hospital's duty of care, but also that, that that breach caused the ultimate harm suffered by the person. Um, and it's essential that we are able to tick both those boxes of breach and causation before we know there's a case. So sometimes in medical negligence cases, we get a situation where we can show that there was a mistake made, but we can't prove causation because it turns out that the person would have had the same outcome regardless of the mistake. So we couldn't okay. form that link in the chain between the mistake and the damage that was done. Is um, it almost like intent, like they intended to cause the damage? I don't Is that? I'm still confused. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily. We just need to show that as a result of the doctor's mistake, the patient's outcome was worse than it should have been. Okay. And I think that's where the complexity with vaginal mm. childbirth comes into it. And you jump in here at any time because from my particular case, and I think a lot of women listening would be very similar in terms of vaginal birth. I can't talk about obstetric birth because I haven't had a cesarean section. I will just say that. But the use of forceps, this is what mm -hmm. I was told, that the use of forceps in my birth in did tear my pelvic floor muscle away yeah. from the bone. Mm -hmm. So in my layperson mind, I'm thinking, well, yes, they used forceps and they didn't ask me and they just did it and that caused the injury. Isn't that causation? That's <laughs> it's a really good question too. In cases like that where, um, you know, you're clear on what has caused your injury, um, we might be able to tick the causation box in that kind of scenario, but then we need to look, well, can we also prove that there was a breach of duty of care or was there a mistake made? Yeah. But because forceps are routinely used in vaginal birth, then probably not. Mm, and then sometimes, think, yeah, sorry, Steph. No, no, it's okay. There's a bit of a lag. Sorry. Yeah, you go. <laughs> I was just going to say sometimes in cases like what you've described, the breach of duty of care might have been not giving the patient proper informed consent about the use of forceps, for example. And then obviously forceps were used that have caused the injury. Um, another aspect to causation in that kind of case might be what would the woman have done had she been properly informed about the risks? And so I, causation can have different elements yeah. to it too. <laughs> because I, I was specifically asked that and I think that's where at that point there could have been potential cracks in a clear-cut case. This is where the first kind of question about 
could be proof causation because I was asked the question, would you have had an elective Caesar to start with? And my answer was no. Mm. And that still stands today because all throughout my uh, childbirth education and, and pregnancy, the method I went with in midwifery care was that you birth vaginally. So that basically I believed in an, um, a, a way to birth that, that was the most natural, organic, beautiful way, like you were supposed to do it yeah. that way. I never, I remember asking questions about cesarean birth and it being very shunned. We don't talk about cesarean here because you'll be fine if you just relax. So to me, now I can look back retrospectively and say that's basically what I was told and sold and I bought that concept a hundred percent I'm not blaming anyone I jumped into that and said yes I choose that and yes I did think that cesarean was like failing vaginal birth I don't know where all that come from but that's the way I thought so I think that's where like well if you wouldn't have had a cesarean if they would have told you you might have gone ahead and done it anyway how are we to ever know, though? Because I can sit here and say, if I knew what was going to happen to me, I would have said, Caesar, me now. That's right. And I would have gotten over that stigma of thinking I was a failure. If I knew now what I knew then, and that's the impossible thing, yeah. right? Yeah, and in New South Wales too, and in most jurisdictions, if not all in Australia, it's hard because in looking at, well, what would the person have done if they'd have been properly informed about the risks? The person is not able to give evidence to say, with yep. the benefit of hindsight after everything that's happened, this is what I would have done. So we need to look at the facts before everything happened, um, you know, about particular conversations that women might have had with their doctor or their partner or the birthing plan. Yes, yep. just anything that might have happened or that might have been said that might, you know, tip the scales in favour of them probably not having a forceps delivery if they'd been properly informed. So yes. we call those kinds yes. of cases failure to warn cases. And in those cases, causation is the issue of whether the person would have still gone ahead with forceps yes. or not had they been properly informed looking at all the facts yes. before everything happened. And I hope that's what I can change. I'm hoping that that's my, especially for my daughter, mm. that she's informed prior and doesn't have to look back in hindsight. Um, even my birthing plan, right? So the birthing mm -hmm. classes we did, I didn't write it. They sent it to me and it was pre-filled. I just had to fill in my name. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good birthing plan. Mm. Not knowing that that came back to bite me in the bum because in that birthing plan it says things like, I want to birth vaginally. I want it to be natural and basically giving the impression that I was against having a cesarean section at whatever cost. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you don't, you don't know those things, of course, when you're doing all of that, cause you're just worrying about being pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. It's, um, well, thank you because I do think that does explain it. It still feels, um, complex you would you say it's quite a complex thing it's not black and white for everyone definitely and I think it's easier to talk about once we have had an opportunity to get to know the person and what sure. their you know attitude was towards certain things um and once we've had a look at their medical records for us to then be able to get a better uh, better idea of um 
you know, how it might go down the track if it went to court. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, that's, it's crazy. I, um, I do remember at the, at the time as well with my particular hospital, there was going to be a class action. Maybe you could just mm. get through that jargon. What's the difference between a class action or not a class Good action? Good question as well. So a class action is started or can be started when there are at least seven people who are all suing the same defendant. So that might be the same um, medical practice or the same doctor or the same product. Um, And the cases all have to involve similar circumstances. So, uh, for example, there's a class action on foot at the moment against all the doctors from the Cosmetic Institute in Sydney who um, had doctors who were performing breast augmentations on women without proper training or qualifications. Obviously, there's a lot of women there that all have similar cases against the same um, practice. Sure. Um, there's another one on foot at the moment against um, particular types of mesh implants that are used to support women's For prolapse. prolapses. Yes, um, because the product was faulty. So situations yeah. like that where there's groups of people that have a problem with one unique thing. Because I'm a curious cat, I wonder why it's seven. Like, I wonder why the number's seven and not three or 13. <laughs> like, I wonder why they picked the seven. To that? <laughs> That's just curiosity. That's just me because I know that. Um, like, I ran into people at the supermarket who, who were at the hospital at the same time birthing. It was October. So, to be fair, it's really busy around October. Everyone's birthing babies because of the lovely mm-hmm. summer holiday that they enjoyed <laughs> nine months earlier. So it was really stupidly busy and I was, you know, connected with women who had almost identical experiences to me but were told it was normal as well. Um, but that's why I think, yeah, why seven, you know? Isn't isn't two enough? Isn't the same, rep- like, pattern more than once? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> we often... Just- um- advise clients because just because they may be able to be part of a class action doesn't necessarily mean they have to be they do have the option of pursuing their own private action um, if they want to Um, so for example we have had women approach us that have been treated by doctors at the cosmetic institute um, and they've gone down a private um, route rather than joining the class action so that's an option for women too good point because i do remember at the time that um the first law firm I was with did say, I mean, I, I walked into the massive um, boardroom table and there were just files lined up and they were all similar and mine was one of them. And they did say to me that if you do decide to become part of this class action, you all share the uh, whatever the result is. So if it's a successful win, it's divvied up between you depending on your level of injury. So you take the risk, don't you, really? Yeah, and often that's part of the motivation for people in pursuing a private action rather than joining a class action because the compensation can be higher, the process can be quicker, um, and the woman also has more control over the process and the decisions that are made, whereas in a class action, um, generally speaking, you are fairly out of the picture and then, like you say, at the end, the result is divided up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, that's probably a good point for women to consider as well. Um, Speaking about costs, (laughs) you might not be able to answer this question in particular, but this is 
definitely one of the hurdles that stopped us from pursuing was the astronomical costs yes. involved with medical reports. Yes. You know, we're talking like four and a half thousand dollars upfront to just obtain a report from a doctor. And I'm not saying just report, they're like 28 pages. Um, there's work involved, right? <laughs> but is it, I don't know, is it a case of like the wedding tax? You know, you want a photographer and one day they're $500, but then if you want them the next day at your wedding, it's $1,500 because you put the wedding in it. Is oh, it the same? Medical I know what you mean. I got married last year and I definitely had problems with wedding tax. <laughs> um, but yes, they can be huge and it depends on the expert. We find that often different specialties charge different amounts. Um, cardiologists are particularly expensive, we find. Okay. Um, but I suppose there is a lot of work to the expert involved in, you know, carefully reviewing someone's medical records, particularly if there are a lot of them. Um, sure. And then we usually ask the expert to have a teleconference with us and then go ahead and write a report if we think what they have to say is supportive of the case. Okay. Um, that being said, the costs are still huge. And like you said, they often cost, you know, two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, sometimes more yeah. for a report. And we often need, um, like I said, several different reports in a case to be able to get a sense of the person's injury. So it does become really expensive. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, <laughs> sorry, Steph, I think we might have a lag. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most um, people, you know, don't have that kind of money just sitting in their back pocket. So it can become a real problem. So yeah. most firms have options for clients whereby there's um, a funding facility that will pay for those disbursements along the road. And then the funding facility is reimbursed out of the settlement money at the end. So it just, yeah. it takes away that financial pressure on the person during the course of the case. Yeah. Um, and it means that they're not out of pocket several thousand dollars every time we need to pay for an expert report. Okay. And that's great. Cause that leads me to my next question, actually. So uh, the first firm I worked with were no win, no fee. But, and then you just said the word disbursement. So they are all terminology I learned the hard way because yes. no win no fee to me thought like awesome I I've got nothing to lose let's just see how we go and then they went 10 grand disbursements thanks I'm like what <laughs> yeah. what is it so yeah, yeah maybe you could explain to us what that actually means and what a disbursement is yeah that's a good question so disbursements are things like expert reports and the cost of your medical records um, that come from outside sources that we need to pay along the way to be able to progress a case. Okay. So I can totally understand how when you <laughs> see on the side of a bus, you know, our firm is no win, no fee, that it would give you that impression that there are no costs involved. Yeah. Um, what, it, what it usually means is that um, the law firm will not charge you for their professional fees or their time in working on your case. Okay. unless they get a successful outcome for you. But that being said, um, there are other things that we need to pay for that come from outside of the firm that are necessary to be able to investigate and pursue a case. Um, okay. Those are disbursements. Um, okay. And disbursements um, usually are required to be paid by the client along the way. Um, okay. And like I said, if the person can't afford to pay for all those disbursements, which in my experience is most clients, yeah, yeah. Um, introduce them to a funding facility who will pay the disbursements for them. 
Yeah, and it's, it's, I think it's important to add too because we looked at that. Actually, we looked at that as an avenue in the past because we didn't have the four and a half grand. They do charge a lot of interest. And yes, people just need to be aware of that before. So just ask the question. So yeah, they're going to fund it for me. So I get my report. Awesome. The money will come out of my settlement at the end. Awesome. How much? Like you just—it's yeah. just good to know. Just, yeah, you know, know what you're getting yourself into. Definitely. Um, because I think some people might even then opt to—I don't know—potentially borrow it from a family member where the interest is not as much, or that's right. Find another way. Yeah. So it's good to know that that's a, that that support net is there for people who just have no options. Yeah. Um, but it's just nice. And I wanted to be really upfront with women who are listening today because this was the lived experience we had of going, always shocked with all this amount of money. And um, I think had we gone into it from the very beginning, knowing upfront what we know now, um, it might've looked differently. It's like that hindsight thing. Yeah. (laughs) But we might've actually been able to do things to free up some funds to do that first but when you're in the thick of it and like the bill has to be paid to get the report first you know um but I think like you said it's important to get those reports up front before you decide if you have a case for me unfortunately my first law firm firm did it ass around they said I had a case we were all in full steam ahead and a year or two years down the track they said Oh, we better get a report, you know. Oh, <laughs> it was a bit, that's too late. That's really tough. And yeah. And I think yeah. that's what tempted my my thought process that I mean, I've read the chapter is never trust a lawyer, they say. Oh. <laughs> and I think we were tainted by that. And I think if people go in knowing, uh, I think obviously when I had spoken to your law, law firm straight up, they said, well, where's your independent report? That's the first mm. thing they asked. And I said, mm. I don't have one. I'm like, well, we can't do anything without it. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Yeah, much yeah. better. Yeah, because, I mean, even though, you know, some lawyers specialise in medical negligence, we're still not doctors. So often yeah. we can draw on our past experience and look at other cases and what experts have said, you know, in yes. other cases and have a yeah. fairly you know, reasonable, educated guess as to whether yeah, yeah. there might be good prospects of success. But really, and like you said, until we get a report from a specialist, someone yeah. who is qualified to say whether or not there was negligence, we don't know. So we always make that the first thing we focus on doing. Awesome. That's good to hear. <laughs> and um, so, the other so, thing, yeah. oh, sorry, Steph, I was just going to add that um a lot of clients, when they come to a law firm, um, the numbers in the cost agreement and the estimates for disbursements can be huge and very intimidating. Yeah, um, sure. But the other thing to be mindful of is that if you are successful, the other side will pay for the vast majority of the legal expenses or our fees. Awesome. Um, right. And they will awesome. pay for 100% of disbursements. Oh, wow. We try and emphasize to clients that although it it looks scary initially, um, most of those costs will be paid for by the other side at the end of the day. That's awesome. I never knew that. Okay. You've just. (gasps) It's very important to know. (laughs) That takes a lot of fear. Thank you for showing that because that would take a lot of fear out of it for people, I could imagine. Oh, and me too, Um, if I was in that position. Yeah. Because you would think, oh, all these disbursements and if I only get X amount and that's all deducted, is it is it worth 
a smaller amount at the end. But if you say that's, you know, majority of that's covered, if you win, if you're successful, of course, then that's, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I think, um, look, the reason why we're having this chat is because we want to make it better for all of our girls. And I do know in the UK, they do like a birthing debrief, which mm. I have not experienced here in Australia. Do you, have you heard much about these? I haven't heard about it. And from what I do know, it sounds amazing. I think that should definitely be something that we do here in Australia. Um, yeah. I think, you know, personally, any opportunity for women to be able to talk about their experience and to get answers about why things happened the way they did or why something went wrong is so valuable. And, you know, it's something that we also hear a lot as lawyers is that it's really important for the injured person, like I said before, to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to someone else. So I think yeah. if, you know, there's an opportunity for women who have had a horrible experience like yourself to be able to give feedback, um, yeah. I wonder if, you know, that might be really empowering and useful as well. Yeah, I hope so. I hope we do end up doing something like that along. That's one of my, you know, box boxes to tick along yeah. the, this journey is to ensure that women are given an opportunity. My gut feeling is that uh, that it's currently not part of the process because it could open up so many law <laughs> lawsuits, I guess, and they don't want to open that can of worms. I don't know, but I know that my main request about going down this uh, legal path was to get an apology for what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And once I was told by a barrister that would never happen, I was like, oh, that's not great. Then why would I do if I'm not going to get what I really want? Like the money thing is obviously a part of it, but I wanted them just to say, uh, we're sorry that we told you it was normal and it actually wasn't, mm. you know, not making me feel like it was all in my head and I was just some crazy person who was the only person who experienced a shitty birth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Those early days were very much questioning, oh, it must just be me. I just didn't do it right. And to know later on down the track that um, someone else was involved in that decision-making. Yeah. Then, yeah, I just wanted them to go, yeah, look, we got it wrong. We're really sorry. Yeah. But it's never going to happen and that's, yeah. um, it's a shame. Yeah. So I, we're wanting to, yeah, yeah, you I'm go. Sorry, I was just going to say I totally agree that often doctors and hospitals are reluctant to give apologies. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. think they should be so scared of doing that, though, because it's actually the case that in an open disclosure meeting at a hospital, whatever is said or any notes that are made um, as part of that meeting, they're actually not allowed to be, you know, adduced as evidence in a medical negligence oh. case. So it's private. It can't be used against them. Um, and we find actually that for a lot of people, an apology might have been all it took to prevent legal action being carried out. So I think it might actually be a really useful thing for yeah. hospitals to do that as a prevention to further litigation. That's awesome. <laughs> Pardon me. Yeah, I remember um, like back in 2006 and seven, I was mm -hmm. going to my GP regularly, you know, with all of these uh, A-type symptoms and I was saying, I just don't feel right and blah, 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 blah. And eventually I think after maybe eight to 12 months, he did, I got diagnosed with cancer at another GP because he was just giving me the same response that just relax, blah, 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 blah. And then when I went back to tell him that it was actually cancer that he'd missed, he apologised 
that was enough for me. I didn't, you know, everyone's going, oh, you should sue him. He didn't do this and do that. I'm like, well, the symptoms I had, how could he know? Yes, he should have done tests, blah, 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 blah. But he actually got really teary and said, Stephanie, I'm so sorry. I didn't mm. pick that up. And I was okay with that. No legal, no, nothing. That was okay. It is. It was what it was. And I think you're right. If a lot of people do start saying, yep, I made a mistake and I'm really sorry. How can I help you now? Or whatever. We wouldn't be having these big, you know, David and Goliath battles, I'd say. Um, so I guess systematically I know that things need to change in the hospital, but is there anything in your opinion legally that could change to help women birth better? I think there are policies that have been in place in recent years in public hospitals to try and reduce the cost on public hospitals by reducing the number of cesareans that are performed and yeah. it was interesting hearing you talk before about how you know you were just given this plan for a vaginal birth this is what was going to happen you weren't informed about alternative options um that's really interesting to hear how this policy seems to you know be playing out like that for a lot of women so it's interesting that we have this situation where obstetricians are being encouraged to reduce the number of cesareans that are performed so mm -hmm. It seems that then what's happening is that we have more vaginal births, we have more women receiving advice from midwives alone um, because midwives look after vaginal births, but because midwives aren't allowed to um, be giving patients um, advice about um, interventions like forceps and vacuums or cesareans, we often have women that are, you know, going into a birth without that information. Mm -hmm. So then when something yep. does go wrong or there is a need for an intervention, women don't have that information to be able to make informed decisions at the time. So I think that that policy and those kinds of policies need to be reviewed. And yes. I think a really, sorry, go on. Yeah, I'm going to jump in only because with, Patients who have had lived experience as the result of the policy, like myself and many women, I think when you just have midwives and obstetricians involved, they clearly, um, there's a divide in their beliefs and their practices, and I don't want to make them change. I'm not trying to convince anyone the way they think and do things is wrong. I just want the people who are the policymakers to talk to the women who are the result of the policy. But it's going to be hard to do that. And do you know why, Hayley? Because the studies that are done about childbirth are skewed and swayed to get the result they want. And by that, I mean um, I applied to be part of a child, vaginal childbirth study and was told that my delivery was too traumatic to be included. <laughs> so I'm like, well, the report that they write and then they give to the people who write the policies it's all going to be roses. It's all going to be what they want it to say. Absolutely. So we're a statistic that is unseen, unheard and uncounted, which is the frustrating part. Mm. I don't know, like, I don't know if you know the answer to this, by the way, what can we be doing to talk to those policymakers who potentially will have to review this at some point or policies are reviewed from a legal standpoint what do we do? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing already, Steph, just making this so much more of a public issue can have more power than 
you realise and put more pressure on the system to make these changes to prevent outcomes like yours from happening. Um, Taking legal action in itself is a powerful vehicle for change as well that can often result in changes in hospital policies and the way things are done. Um, And then as well, even if people don't bring a legal action, they always have the option to make a complaint to the Healthcare Complaints Commission. Okay. Those complaints are all considered. Um, Many are acted upon and that is another way that change can result. Okay. I I think the last question I have, because you just said that and I've just reminded myself, yeah, I was... I was meant to do that. That was that was the initial um, purpose of going to law firm number one is that they were going to write a letter on my behalf to, to the Complaints Commission and that just never happened and I don't understand why but it doesn't matter. Can someone like myself who is now, my daughter's nearly six and I did just want to say um, that I learned about the statute of limitation meaning that I only had three years from the time I discovered that I was injured, which was her birth, um, or officially diagnosed, which was probably a year later, to bring a claim forward. And I, it's hideous to think that a brand new mum, a first time mum mm. who's adjusting to motherhood and learning how to navigate her body, her child, her life, to then go and be okay to take a legal action, like three years yeah. is not enough. Absolutely. The law, um, it's actually a little bit more grey. Um, the, okay. the wording of the legislation is that it's three years from the date that you discover that negligence occurred. So okay. to be conservative, we always ask people to try and come to us if they can within three years of the injury. Yes. However, just because you know when the injury occurred, that's not necessarily to say that you have found out that there was negligence. So in our experience, we find that until we get a supportive expert report from a specialist to say that there was negligence, the clock hasn't started ticking. Uh So we often get people who come to us, you know, well after three years of their injury, but they haven't got an expert report yet. And until they do, it's arguable that the clock hasn't even started. Um, So usually um, if... If someone comes to us after three years, that's not a problem. Okay. But that being said, there is a rule that um, claims are not allowed to go ahead if the injury was more than 12 years ago. Oh, okay. There are some exceptions to that rule. You can still get over it, um, but it's very difficult. So absolutely, generally speaking, no more than 12 years. Um, But anything up to that, providing you don't yet have an expert report, is okay. I wonder if that's similar in UK, in the UK only because I've been following a journey of another mum who had birth trauma 26 years ago and mm. she's been such a beacon of light for me and for many other women. Um, I think her Instagram was it's okay not to be okay mm. um, or I'm okay not to be okay and I and really sadly just this week she's closed her account. She said I have fought this um, in the last three years she's taken the legal uh, avenue and they basically just said to her tough luck too late mate and I'm like well yeah how could she have done that when she was so young a new mum and it's defeated her and I hate that it's really sad do you think that that three-year limitation or 12-year would ever change if we 
were able to share with the people who write even that law, <laughs> that you can't do that within three years when you're trying to be a mum. Yeah. And live, and live with injuries, you know, like it's not yeah. just being a new mum, it's living with broken bodies and broken pelvic floors and there's so much involved, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think um, part of the flexibility with that three-year limitation period is for that reason. You know, often people are too incapacitated. They're not ready emotionally to go and talk to a lawyer about their experience and taking that yeah. step of getting an expert opinion. Um, the reason the 12-year period, um, the limitation period exists is just because it can be prejudicial to the other side for someone oh, okay. to then try and sue them when it's been that long ago. You know, often after 12 years, the medical records have been destroyed, um, uh, the doctors involved are moved or dead. So yeah. it's, it's just to um, avoid any prejudice to the other side that the rule exists, but I can totally understand it can still be really hard for women, like the woman you're talking about yeah. because of that rule, yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. So, um, look, I think that um, for women and their partners, for them to understand all of this stuff beforehand, because I, I often get the comment like, oh, we don't want to scare women. Okay, yeah, sure, get it, right. But we never say that to someone who's going to go and have a knee replacement. Oh, we don't want to scare you. So we're not going to tell you anything. Just good luck and see you on the other side. What do you think we could be doing in a gentle non-scary way that informs women about all risks positive negative about vaginal birth and cesarean birth yeah well like you said in any other operation you know you would have a consultation with the doctor to talk about um, the potential risks and what that would mean for you if those risks eventuated so I see no reason why the same thing shouldn't happen in an obstetric setting um, yeah. and you know, while it's absolutely the doctor's um, responsibility to be providing that advice, um, you know, like in your experience, sometimes it, it doesn't happen or it's conveyed in a way that's difficult to understand. So I also think it's important, you know, for us women to try our best to empower ourselves as much as possible to get that information whether that's, you know, asking for information sheets, um, asking doctors to avoid medical jargon. Um, yeah. yeah. If yeah. a woman has the means, maybe making a second appointment or getting a second opinion. Awesome. I, I got a, um, there was a post on our group last night that was, it was a medical report about her prolapse. And she's like, what does it mean? I don't know. And then I read it and I was like, I think I know what that bit means because I've seen it in mine, but I still don't know what it means. And then the other ladies were saying, did they not explain it to you? She's like, no, and you won't take a second appointment. And mm. it was just horrible. I think the whole process for women is so hard to navigate. But I hope that today's conversation has given women more insight and we've unpacked a bit of jargon and talked about the process so that if they are sitting at home thinking, yeah, you know what, this doesn't feel right, but... I want to give it a go that they could reach out to you and even just have a phone conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear from anyone who thinks that um, a chat with a solicitor might be helpful. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And look, I'm, you know, there's solicitors all around Australia that can help everyone and around the world. In, in, oh, for in sure. Particular. I'm being greedy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, no, no. I, what I meant, sorry, what I meant by that was I want 
women listening today to make sure they are connecting with someone who has worked in this medical negligence space and in particular birth trauma. I think the first firm I went to, they've done, like you said, they've done medical negligence, but birth trauma really wasn't their jam. And it wasn't until a barrister came from Sydney who had been in that space. That's what I meant, that, yeah, they, they need to work with someone who has particular experience with birth trauma. Yeah. Definitely. And we hope that they get the outcomes that they want. And this episode has given them um, a little bit of insight as to what they could be up for up front. And I think that's been really good. Thanks so much, Hayley. I appreciate your time and your expertise in this space and, you know what my real hope is is that one day you'll be out of a job when it comes to birth trauma (laughs) (laughs) I hope so too that's yeah awesome thank you so much for the chat thanks for having me Steph (laughs) bye so did you learn something new today I wonder what the most surprising thing for you that you've heard. You can let us know over on our Brave Mama Instagram or on iTunes. You can send a personal message or leave a comment with a star rating. This really helps other women to know if it could be helpful for them too. And just to let you know, I do read every single comment and review personally. So thank you. Here is just what one of our listeners has said. I've learned more through your podcast and community than I have via the team of professionals around me. And I'm very thankful for that. That is amazing, isn't it? That someone who has tuned in has been impacted that much. And that's what helps me keep going. It's amazing. So as we go into next month, we will be sharing some more giveaways. We've got Huggies, Madam Flavor, and some Pinky McKay's booby bickies. So keep an eye out on the socials. And if you haven't already signed up to our community, you can certainly join the Brave Mumblehood. The link is in the show notes below and you never have to miss a thing. Until next time, be kind to yourself and bye for now. Brave Mama.